from Ohio to Mississippi, Washington to North Carolina, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates and inflation continues to rage at historic levels. What impact is this having on American families? E.J. Antoni of the Heritage Foundation joins us to discuss. Midterm elections are rapidly approaching, with control of the U.S. Congress at stake. Will there be a red wave? Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Federal efforts to promote green energy are being frustrated by federal regulations. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine has details on how one project in New York got around those regulations. And seven months ago, few would have thought Ukraine would successfully repel the Russian invasion. That has changed. On this week's American Radio Journal commentary, Colin Hanna from Let Freedom Ring USA says something big is about to happen. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The Federal Reserve is raising target interest rates in an effort to bring down the nation's stubbornly high inflation rate. But is it too little too late? E.J. Antoni is a research fellow for regional economics in the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. He is here to explain. E.J., welcome back to American Radio Journal. E.J., in a recent article, you said that, quote, the tree of a prodigal federal government is bearing its rotten fruit and Americans will be forced to eat the bitter produce. You did this in the context of inflation and interest rates. So what do you mean by rotten fruit and bitter produce? Unfortunately, what we're facing right now is is not something that we can avoid at this point. It's something that has been baked into the cake for the last two years because of what the federal government has been doing, which is spending, borrowing, and printing trillions upon trillions of dollars that it doesn't have. And when the government does that, at first, it makes it look like the economy is booming because all of this money just arrived out of nowhere. But that leads to inflation, which is what we've already gone through. And now to reel in that inflation, to get it under control, the government is going to be forced to severely curtail the money supply. And then the result of that is the bust, which is following the boom. And hand in glove with that, with these higher interest rates, people who have an adjustable rate mortgage or a balance on their credit cards, whatever the case may be, anyone who's in debt and is subject to those changing interest rates is going to be absolutely crushed by these higher borrowing costs. When you talk about the Fed and the money supply, a lot of folks don't really understand how it works. So let's maybe get a little bit in the tall weeds here. How does the Fed increase or decrease the money supply? Well, the Federal Reserve is the only institution in the United States that has a magical bank account. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. I I mean it to a, a certain degree of seriousness, because when the Federal Reserve purchases debt securities, right, whether those are treasury bonds or, or other instruments, when the Federal Reserve does that, it writes a check for that uh, that item out of an account that has no money in it. Literally, it has a zero balance. And so when that happens, the Federal Reserve creates the money out of nothing. Now, likewise, when they turn around and and do the reverse, when they sell those securities and people pay the Federal Reserve, where does the money go? It goes right back into that account. It vanishes back into the same nothing from whence it came. So because the Federal Reserve has that unique ability, the Federal Reserve is uniquely culpable 
when we have inflation. And now the Fed is raising its target rate uh, rather dramatically, uh, 75 basis points each of, what, the last three meetings. And we're expecting additional interest rate hikes going forward as well? We are, but I do want to put the the dramatic nature of these rate increases in context, because everyone is focusing on the size of the rate increases, that it's 75 basis points, or in other words, three-quarters of a percentage point. But we have to remember that the the key Federal Reserve interest rate is still only 3.25%. The last time inflation was this high, that same key Federal Reserve interest rate was already in double digits. So this is essentially like a runner at a race. The gun goes off, and he watches all of the competitors get almost all the way around the track before he decides to take a few giant leaps forward. Now, is that progress? Absolutely. Is it going in the right direction? Most certainly. Is it also woefully behind? Most definitely. So we're now in a situation, EJ, where we have all this money that has been created. Inflation is at near historic highs for at least looking back over the last 40 or 50 year period. The Fed's trying to bring it under control. In doing so, do they risk knocking us into a recession? Absolutely. But but once again, I mean, so much of this is, is just baked into the cake. Like we already had the, the recession in the first half of the year. And now the big concern is that we'll have a double dip. It looks like the third quarter is most likely going to be positive. But after that, all bets are off. But we have to remember that it's not simply a matter of, well, the Federal Reserve is tightening and therefore we're going to fall into a recession. No, inflation itself causes recessions. So if you don't deal with the inflation, you are going to doom an economy to not only continuing inflation, but also economic stagnation, hence the term stagflation, to describe the phenomenon that is happening not only today, but that did happen back in the uh, late 1970s as well. So the Federal Reserve needs to get their act together. And unfortunately, the chemotherapy for this cancer of inflation is going to do a tremendous amount of harm to the patient in the process. But it's what you need to do to kill the tumor, because otherwise, if you let it go, the cancer is going to eventually kill the patient. As you so eloquently said, we're in the process now of eating the bitter produce from all of this. So aside from raising interest rates, what other steps can be taken here, EJ, by either the Fed or other parts of the federal government, including Congress and the president, to start digging us out of this hole and bringing inflation under control without totally tanking the economy? Well, if the federal government would balance the budget, that would immediately have a tremendous impact because it would mean that the Federal Reserve would not have to tighten credit so so fast and so hard. And because the government is continuing to run these massive, mind-bogglingly large deficits, that means the Fed is going to need to continue to press harder and harder on the brake in order to try to get things under control. You did earlier touch upon the fact that these rising interest rates are going to have an impact on people with adjustable rate mortgages. But what other impact is this having on on housing, EJ? Because we have folks who maybe didn't buy a house during the recent low interest rate period. Is this going to really put the nation into somewhat of an affordable housing crisis? Oh, most definitely. I mean, home affordability has just utterly collapsed over the last year and a half. And we have essentially created what looks to be an entire generation of a, a basically a permanent renting class. People who, because of inflation, have not been able to save for a down payment. And now that home prices are so high, they most likely still will not be able to save for a down payment. And even if they eventually can, 
because the interest rates have gotten higher. Now that drives up your monthly payment. And so now the mortgage itself is going to be unaffordable given their current budgets. It, it is really just absolutely terrible. We have been talking with E.J. Antoni, who is a research fellow for regional economics in the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. E.J., tell us a little bit about Heritage, and you've written a number of articles on the issues we've discussed today. Where can folks find them? Certainly, they can find myself and a lot of the other great experts at the Heritage Foundation at heritage.org. Heritage.org. We have been talking with E.J. Antoni from the Heritage Foundation. E.J., thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth is tracking key congressional races all across the country. We're going to talk about those races and the potential impact on the balance of power in Washington next year. Scott, good to have you here. Great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. As we look at the United States House of Representatives at this point, Scott, Democrats have a very slight majority. What do Republicans need in order to get back into majority control? Well, you need 218 votes, and that means Republicans need to pick up five seats in the November elections. And right now, Republicans are in a pretty good position with a lot of solid Republican seats. Democrats, not so much with how many solid Democrats seats that they've got. And really, how you determine what's a solid Republican seat and what's a solid Democrat seat is viewed by the data related to the number of partisan voters in each district. So in many Republican districts, you'll hear that there's a PVI or a partisan voter index of R plus 20. That's considered a really, really strong Republican district. If something's an R plus one or a D plus one, those are effectively toss-up districts. And in these major elections where we're trying to figure out who's got control of the House of Representatives, those D plus one, D plus three seats are largely influenced by the uh, national politics that go into these major elections. And certainly the Dobbs case that went through the Supreme Court is having a little bit of a hangover effect on some of these close seats for Republican candidates. But right now there are, are roughly 190 solid Republican seats, and Democrats have about 160 solid Democrat seats. So then when you think about how many are likely Democrat how many are Democrat toss-ups, how many are likely Republicans, and how many are Republican toss-ups, the number really starts to build millions and millions of dollars into what are known as campaign expenditures or independent expenditures from super PACs. And Club for Growth PAC, Club for Growth Action, together are working on a lot of these House races to, to win back our majority. And we're also obviously focused on United States Senate races But when you look throughout the Republican toss-up seats, we can go from states like Arizona and North Carolina and Ohio and Texas, where those are typically known as red states. And so these congressional districts, everybody feels actually pretty good about it. But there are also Republican toss-ups in dark blue states like California and New York. So we have opportunities in rural areas of those states to pick up Republican seats. Uh, Nevada is also a really important state. Pennsylvania's got a bunch of toss-ups. And then we even have a a toss-up in Alaska after Don Young's death and and Peltola won the special election. That race now goes to the general election. And we've got Nick Begich and Sarah Palin and Peltola back on the ballot one more time with ranked choice voting nonetheless. 
in Alaska, which is typically known as a pretty bright red seed. So it should be a good opportunity for a pickup, depending on how ranked choice voting shakes out. Now, I think about uh, who these members are, right? Because not all members are equal in terms of the political leverage that they bring to the table. Some do represent those statewide races. And if you've got an at-large district like Wyoming, where Harriet Hageman has already defeated Liz Cheney, and then you have Alaska that's an at-large district. And then you have uh, some of these other states like New Jersey, where a Democrat Malinowski is really facing a tough race and, and probably going to lose. Wisconsin 3 has been represented by Ron Kind for a long time. Derek Von Ordren is uh, poised to pick up that seat. Then we have open races in Arizona in the 6th District. Due to redistricting, that's, that's a real good pickup opportunity. Same thing with the 2nd Congressional District of Arizona, and Eli Crane is in good position there. Think about the Democrats' candidate in Florida for Governor Charlie Crist. So he left the 13th Congressional District vacant in Florida, and uh, Club for Growth PAC has endorsed Anna Paulina Luna in in that seat, and that's obviously now going to flip red after redistricting that Ron DeSantis in the state legislature in Tallahassee was able to accomplish. But there are some Republican districts that are very, very difficult to maintain, and some of that has been because of redistricting. We saw what Democrats were able to do in Illinois, and Rodney Davis vacated his congressional district because Democrats do it drew it in a way that he was going to lose. And so that one right now is is likely to be picked up by the Democrats. But if we kind of shift over to some of these toss-up races, I think there's a lot of excitement for candidates on both sides of the aisle. And that's where the majority is actually going to be determined, especially in in what I think is going to be a really, really close race in, in many of these congressional districts. Looking at the potential new Republican majority, Scott, what's it going to look like? We have a narrow majority like Nancy Pelosi has had the last couple of years. Are we anticipating perhaps a wider majority that could give a potential Speaker McCarthy a little more maneuvering room, if you will? Yeah, well, he would obviously love to have that breathing room. And right now we're in that process where folks are trying to run their campaigns to change the minds of these independent, persuadable voters there's, there's partisan voters like you and I that we know how exactly we're going to vote in November. But there's some people that are still kind of undecided or they can have their mind changed. And that's what these millions of dollars in TV ads that I'm mostly ignoring are working to do to change voters' perception and views on specific candidates and, and the policies that they support. Kevin McCarthy obviously wants to have a big majority, but I think Everybody that's looking at the 2022 election in a realistic fashion understands that this is not 1994 and it is not 2010 when Republicans gained 63 seats. Right now, Republicans are, I think, in a good position to pick up about 20 to 25 seats and hold a majority of roughly 15 to 20 seats. That's a workable majority. But it also means that these caucuses that are in the House of Representatives and they effectively build coalitions to influence policy in a conservative fashion, like the House Freedom Caucus, they're going to be empowered to hold leadership accountable. And we know that the Freedom Caucus is probably going to have between 35 and 40 members that are part of their group. And so when it comes to holding Kevin McCarthy accountable, 
and making sure that he does conservative things rather than goes to Democrats and Nancy Pelosi to pass legislation for the Biden administration, uh, there's always going to be that check from the conservative right. And so when it comes to the organizing resolution, that, that's one of the first things that Congress votes on in January. Republicans on the conservative side of the aisle really want to see some changes in the way that we adjudicate legislation. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a bit about the club. The Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of D.C. We have a political action committee known as Club for Growth PAC, and we also have a super PAC known as Club for Growth Action. We've gotten engaged in many, many races all throughout the country. Check us out at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you very much. Thank you. The Biden administration is pushing the development of green energy to combat so-called man-made global warming. But as Eric Baim of Reason Magazine reports, federal regulations are hindering the effort. A major wind energy project in New York is going to drop $29 million in federal funding so it can avoid the headaches that come with the federal permitting requirements. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. A couple of weeks ago on this program, we took a look at how uh, federal permitting rules are getting in the way of lots of the green energy projects, the environmentally friendly energy projects that the Biden administration wants to push. And in essence, one of the biggest obstacles to the federal government's goal of getting us more clean energy is the federal government's own regulatory and red tape that gets in the way. And I want to revisit that today because there's a story out of New York that I think just perfectly illustrates what's going on here and why these federal permitting requirements, requirements that Congress recently had a a discussion about changing and then decided not to, why those permitting requirements remain such a big impediment to getting more clean energy, more green energy into America's energy supply. Now, what happened last week in upstate New York is that that's where a a planned wind energy project is uh, going to be built in the middle of the Hudson River. And it's been stalled for months because of federal permitting rules. So to speed things along, the Port of Albany announced uh, this week that it would forego $29 million in federal spending that had been allocated to the project. And by dropping the funding, the port also gets to ignore all the federal red tape and all the strings that came with that money. Now, this is a $350 million project, so the federal funding is only a small portion of it. But that whole project had been in jeopardy since earlier this year because the port had cut about 80 acres of trees down on the land where these wind turbines are going to be put up. And uh, they had done that. They had cleared out the trees without getting the proper federal permits from something called the Maritime Administration within the Department of Transportation. Now, you might be confused, as as I am, why the Maritime Administration is responsible for governing the cutting of trees, you know, which are on land. But that's exactly One of the problems here, it's just endlessly confusing because they didn't have those permits. Construction had to be halted. And uh, now by dropping the federal money out of the project, the port will be able to move ahead. The Maritime Administration now does not have the authority to review that project at all. 
So I think the situation in Albany there in the, on the Hudson River is a perfect example of why federal permitting reform is needed. And it's a telling illustration of how these environmental regulations can often stand in the way of environmentally friendly developments like wind power. As we've covered before on the program, and as I and my colleagues at Reason have written before, expanding wind energy production is a cornerstone of the Biden administration's green energy plan, which, of course, is got the ambitious goal of transitioning America fully to decarbonized energy by 2035. We'll see if that happens. If transitioning to green energy is a necessary response to the supposed emergency of global warming, someone forgot to tell the federal government's regulatory bodies because they continue to get in the way. When it comes to offshore wind projects, for example, the Department of Energy's data shows that the U.S. currently generates a maximum of 42 megawatts of electricity from offshore wind, 42 megawatts. But there's another 18,000 megawatts of potential offshore wind power that has been approved or is ready to be built but is currently tied up in permitting. And some of those permitting requirements can drag on for years and years. That's a lot of potential energy that is tied up in red tape. So even if some environmental and regulatory reviews might be necessary before a large-scale construction project, I think that makes some degree of sense. There's ample evidence that federal permitting requirements are just ballooning the time and cost of many of these projects. My colleague Christian Britschke has reported extensively on this, and uh, one of the things that he's found is that environmental impact statements alone take on average four and a half years to complete and run, on average, more than 600 pages. These things are then often wielded by opponents of new development for reasons that have nothing to do with the environment, of course. NIMBYs love this stuff. In July, for example, the Department of Energy canceled two potential wind energy developments off the coast of Long Island due to concerns that included the visibility of the turbines from nearby beaches. Now, look, wind and solar energy, all of this clean energy stuff will always require some dirty energy from natural gas and and coal and oil, other producers, nuclear as well, to back up the stuff that you get from the, the wind and the sun. But more supply of energy from all sources is ideal. That's really what the goal should be. It's not really the Biden administration's goal, but that is the ideal goal for where the country should be heading. But you can't build these green energy projects. For that matter, you can't build many other things, many other key parts of American infrastructure without going through these incredibly expensive and time-consuming regulatory processes. Federal funds for that project on the Hudson River were just a small part of the billion-dollar infrastructure package that passed last year. And the Albany Times Union newspaper reports that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer used his influence to ensure that the project was funded, this specific project was funded from that bill. It's just too bad that the infrastructure bill didn't include crucial permitting reforms to ensure that all that taxpayer cash would translate into, you know, actually being able to build stuff. We could lodge the same complaint with the recently passed uh, continuing resolution that kept the government open. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia tried to include some permitting reforms in that bill, but ultimately they were stripped out because there just wasn't enough support in the Senate to pass them. Though perhaps there is a silver lining in all of this, by dropping the federal money and moving ahead with this wind project anyway, New York is both streamlining the construction process and proving that states maybe don't need federal aid for these purposes in the first place. If you can cut through the red tape and do the stuff without having to go through all the additional steps that the federal government requires, well, then states should probably just try to do more of that. 
For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bam. You can check out our coverage of uh, energy and environmental issues and everything else going on around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has stalled and victory for Ukraine now seems possible. On this American Radio Journal commentary, Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA says something big is about to happen. Something big is about to happen in the Russia-Ukraine war. It's entirely possible that Ukraine will win before winter sets in, an outcome no one expected when Vladimir Putin began the invasion seven months ago. The left-leading Guardian newspaper in England earlier this week said, even as Russian President Vladimir Putin lays claim to more territory with his attempted annexation of four Ukrainian regions just last Friday, the mood in Kiev is that a full victory ought to involve not just taking things back to how they were before the February invasion, but regaining all of Ukraine's territory. Before, Ukrainian officials said Crimea would be theirs again, more out of hope than a firm belief it would actually happen. The same went for most Western officials and diplomats who privately suggested there was little chance of Kyiv ever restoring control. Now, as Russia struggles on the battlefield in southern and eastern Ukraine, and cracks of dissent at home appear over President Putin's unpopular mobilization drive, some in Kyiv hope the writing is on the wall. Everything began with Crimea and everything will end with Crimea, said Zelensky in an August speech. Foreign Policy magazine even says that momentum is on Ukraine's side and that the recent mobilization of 300,000 Russian reservists is nothing but serving up cannon fodder that will not save Russia's war. The Carnegie Endowment for World Peace writes that, until recently, it looked like, despite the informal mutterings and grim expectations of Russia's elites, whose continued political support for Putin is critical, they should not be expected to desert their president no matter what the price of victory. But now, with the chaotic implementation of the mobilization and the sorry state of affairs on the front, the idea that Russia will inevitably prevail has started to be overshadowed by the doubt over what price Russia is prepared to pay in order to bring Ukraine to heel. The longer the conflict rages and the more resources the Russian regime throws into the furnace of war, the more divided Russia's elites become. The liberation of the rail hub of Liman came as Russian forces melted away without a fight. Retired Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, a former National Security Advisor, said the liberation of the rail hub of Liman could turn into a cascading series of defeats of Russian forces. He went on to say that they might be on the precipice of collapse of the Russian army in Ukraine, a moral collapse. I think it's very important also to understand that these forces that are in full retreat now out of Liman were really the first round of the mobilization of what we call reservists. Those forces were hastily trained, thrown into that front, and that's who are collapsing right now. The new conscripts are also believed to suffer from alcoholism on a very large scale, further diminishing their effectiveness. Meanwhile, Ukraine continues to break through Russian defenses, not just in the east, 
but also approaching the important southern city of Kherson. Numerous postings on social media show Ukrainian troops displaying flags in various villages in the Kherson region. If Kherson falls, it will be a political disaster destabilizing the state. Putin cannot find a way out, tweeted retired General Barry McCaffrey, a former U.S. commander. McCaffrey and others continue to warn that with his back to the wall and losing on every front, Putin will become more desperate and dangerous and more likely to consider a low-yield nuclear weapon. That could spark a mutiny within the Russian military. Many, if not most, of Russia's military establishment are believed to be firmly opposed to the use of even the lowest-grade tactical nuclear weapons. The next two weeks will be telling. Something big is about to happen. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WIYQ AM and FM in Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, KCHN AM and KXYZ AM in Houston, Texas. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.